Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. All right, well, good morning. Uh, As Drew said, my name is Jason Myers, and I am excited to be with you all this morning as we uh, continue in our generosity series. Uh, I want to begin with kind of three uh, simple images. So uh, you're driving to work, um, and as you turn the corner, you see someone standing there with a sign that says, out of work, need food, have kids, will you help? And I don't know what your drive to work looks like, but if it looks like mine, I pass two, three, sometimes four persons like that who are standing there asking uh, for food or for money. Uh, The the second scene, uh, around Christmas time, you hear the ringing bell, Salvation Army, right? We go into stores, they're asking uh, for funds. And uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I walk by and try not to maybe make eye contact and um, think, okay, what do I, I don't carry cash anymore, what am I going to do? Um, third scene, um, you're watching the news, breaking news, a natural tragedy has struck. Lives have been destroyed, communities wiped out, and the Red Cross says, will you give? Our, our life is filled with opportunities and challenges and experiences that, that pull on our need to be generous givers to people uh, in need. And as I was thinking about this sermon today, um, I grew up in the church. Ever since I can remember from four years old, my memories are running through the pews. And I was reflecting on that as I was writing this sermon. And I think I can recall uh, zero sermons on care for the poor uh, in my time growing up in church. And I've been almost 50 weeks out of the year. I'm 35. Uh, It's been a while. Uh, And so as I was preparing this, I wanted to kind of frame our time together. This is not a topic that we spend a lot of time thinking about. Yet one of the things that strikes me so interesting about this is that it is all throughout Scripture. It is like a major theme. And uh, my goal today is to remind us of this great grand theme of God's Word uh, and what He calls us to do and how He calls us to be generous. Um, As you know, we're in a series on generosity, and I just want to remind us kind of where we've been. Uh, So a short recap, I have an image on the screen. Um, We've been talking about a threefold model for generosity Uh, that we see rooted in Scripture. Uh, Alan kind of kicked off our series uh, talking about tithing. This is that standard, right, the famous 10%, if you will, uh, where we commit our resources to God's people and our local body. Tithing goes to to do the work of the church, to help literally keep the lights on, to help pay uh, for staff, to help uh, pay for this building. That's the kind of famous uh, 10%. Uh, We then talked about offerings, and offerings are these special kind of targeted gifts uh, that come above and beyond uh, our regular giving. These are the types of giving we do to support people uh, who are raising money to be on Young Life staff, who are going on a missions trip, or even a project like New Garden Next. These are like special uh, targeted givings that kind of go above and beyond our regular giving. Uh, What I want to do today is come to this last form of giving that we're looking at called almsgiving. And as you may know, that's a a funny word. It's not a word we use all the time. Um, But the term literally means an act of mercy. We translate it almsgiving. But if you were to read it in the Old and New Testament, it's literally an act of compassion uh, to those in need. And although it's got an odd name, it's a practice that we see 
throughout the scriptures. And so my goal this morning is to walk us through the great grand story of God at kind of a 20,000 foot view and begin to see uh, how the scriptures form us in thinking about giving uh, to the poor uh, and to the needy. Uh, as I reflect on the New Testament and as I reflect on the Bible and the role of the poor, I'm actually astounded by the role of early Christians uh, in their giving. And I kind of want to start there. These first Jesus followers in the second and third centuries um, gave lavishly and recklessly to the poor in ways that would just blow our minds and go beyond our expectations. What did that look like? It's been noted that in the second and third centuries, uh, Christians would go into slave markets where they were selling other humans. They would purchase a set of slaves and set them free. And that's how they wanted to use their resources. This is what it means to be the people of God. Christians were the first people to provide what we might now call famine relief efforts. They were concerned about giving food and clothing to the most needy. Uh, during the plagues that struck the Roman Empire in the early couple centuries, Christians would run into cities as everybody was running out because they saw people in need and their hearts went out in acts of compassion and acts of mercy and said, we have to help. And maybe you felt that call before too when you see that breaking news story, when you see that person on the street, your heart just breaks. And that's where almsgiving is rooted. The early church was known for their radical, radical generosity. In fact, in the ancient world, we have non-Christians telling other non-Christians that if they're down on their luck, just go find a Christian community and fake it because the Christians will take care of you. They'll give you food. They'll give you clothing. They'll give you shelter. You don't have to believe it. Just lie to them, and they will take care of you. And I know we might step back and pause and say, wait a minute. They're being taken advantage of. They're being made to look like fools. Well, here's the thing. The early Christians knew this. They talk about it with one another. They know they're being taken advantage of, but they just don't care. In many ways, they'd rather be generous, even if it's to a fault. How could they do this? Why were they so radical in their generosity? I think it's because they were so saturated by this story of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning that they lived out what they saw throughout Scripture. They saw what God's people had done. They saw where God's commands were leading them. And they said, we're going to go and do likewise. Um, I want to make a comment here right at the beginning so I'm, I don't lose anybody. Just because we're talking about care for the poor. And, and it's sad that in our current time, care for the poor is such a politically divided issue along lines of red and blue. So let, let me just clear up one, one thing. Christians' care for the poor started long before any political party celebrated it or demonized it, and it will long outlast it. And that is the good news of the gospel. Today we want to kind of deconstruct those categories that we're used to kind of hearing these terms in because we want to allow scripture to be our guide and to form us in, po in powerful ways. Now I know we can have a lot of conversations about just how to best provide that care. But one thing we can't do is say that it's not an important issue or be callous. The scriptures do not afford us the privilege of indifference to the poor. And what I find interesting is nowhere in the scriptures, you can search in vain, you can take me up on this, nowhere in scripture are the poor demonized or belittled. 
Zero references. Nowhere in scripture. So let's begin. We cannot begin to talk about care for the poor without remembering this grand story that we're a part of. And care for the poor runs like a thread through every single act of scripture. And our identity as the people of God is rooted in this practice of care for the poor. And so I want to begin with an image of a theatrical play. I have another image on the screen. Scripture can kind of be viewed like a multi-part story, like a play. And I want to look at it and tell a story in four acts, in four different scenes, if you will. And I want to begin in scene one, where you obviously should begin every play, right, at the beginning. And this is what Drew reminded us of a few weeks ago. So if you were to open up the first page of the Bible, uh, one of the first stories that you meet in this book called Genesis is a story of creation. It's a story of a God that graciously and lavishly places humanity in the midst of an abundant garden. It is teeming with life. And we can't miss this. Right at the beginning, God gives humanity everything they need for a flourishing life. Every tree, every fruit, everything is theirs. There is no lack, there is no shortage, there is no deficiency in God's great gifts to his creation. It's all abundant. And generosity begins here. Generosity begins with the generosity of God towards us. God gives to his people abundantly, and he expects us to do the same. Now, in this story, in this first story, there's only one tree, of course, that is off limits, but they're robustly provided for. And in scene one, we find this great tragedy of Adam and Eve thinking that they don't have enough. You, you can imagine Adam and Eve asking with that tree that's off limits, what is God not providing me? What is he holding back? And in their grasp for more, Adam and Eve in the story bring the whole abundant creation of God crashing down, and they're exiled from the garden as a punishment. And a tragic turn occur, occurs in our story here. In this play, now there won't be enough. The abundance has been cracked. And part of the curse is that now east of Eden, humanity has to provide for itself from the ground. But now with the curse of thistle and thorn, work will be hard. And this is the world that you and I inhabit. We inhabit this post-Genesis 3 world of a world not of unlimited abundance and possibility, but of limited resources. And this is why we feel that tension on our heart when we're asked to give and we go, is there going to be enough? The story does not go well from here, if you're familiar with this story. If the first great sin of scripture, Adam and Eve, was rebellion against God in chapter 3, well then the second great sin was in Genesis 4 and was the forsaking of neighbor. Remember, Cain asks, am I my brother's keeper? What responsibility do I have for that person? Here we see at the beginning of Genesis, both the unity of both love of God and love of neighbor. And this is precisely where almsgiving, compassionate care, is rooted. Are we responsible for our fellow humans? Are we our brother's keeper? Let's take a pause. When we're walking down the street, someone lifts up their hand to ask for money. Is this not the question we're facing? We might have similar objections, right? Maybe you've thought like I have, well, it's not my responsibility to give to them anything. Or I'm sure that there's a service that could help them. Greensville's got a lot of those. 
They, they can take care of that. Or maybe, awfully, and I've thought this thought in full confession, it's probably their fault that they have to ask for money. So I don't want to intervene. I think all of our objections have something in common. And it's about who's responsible. And we want to say, not, not me. Like Cain, in a weird way, I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm not responsible. Far too often we say no, and I think almsgiving, this concern of scripture, is meant to push us in the opposite direction. Almsgiving looks at that heart of ours, like Cain's, that says, I'm not responsible. And almsgiving says, go the other direction. Fight that impulse. Because almsgiving is an act of mercy, and almsgiving and mercy is undeserved. It's not worked for. It's not because of someone's value or worth. All right, fast forward in the story, uh, scene two. Scene two is the story of Israel. God calls the people and sets them apart. He gives them the law to show them how best to represent, to image God to the world. And they are to recreate Eden in their community. There's supposed to be little mini Edens uh, in this broader world. And God calls his people to be like him. Maybe you're familiar with the phrase, um, we are to be holy like God is holy, right? And holiness is seen in their set of distinctive practices that set them apart as the people of God. And as we heard in our Old Testament reading today, one of those distinctive practices is care for the poor. In Deuteronomy, we read this. We heard it read this morning. If there is a poor person among you in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor neighbor. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend to them whatever they need. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart, because then the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and everything that you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your brother, brothers and sisters and towards the poor and the needy in your land. Uh, as we come to this passage in Deuteronomy 15, I have to say, uh, this is one of the most misquoted verses in all the Bible on this topic. Uh, if you were to YouTube this phrase, which I don't recommend, um, you will hear something to the nature of, um, well, we have poor people, there have always been poor people, so what are you going to do? It's an unsolvable problem. I mean, even Jesus says this in the Gospels, right? You'll, the poor will always be with you. The problem with that line of thought, if we could offer just one, uh, is that's exactly the opposite of what Deuteronomy says and what it's trying to communicate. If we read the whole verse, which is on the screen, the point of Deuteronomy is because the poor are present always, we always have an opportunity to be generous. Because there are always people in need, that isn't a cause for callous disconcern, but actually God's invitation to us to consistently practice generosity. If we hear this verse being quoted to disregard the poor, we have twisted and misused this word in Deuteronomy. Part of the message of Deuteronomy is that God's people are commanded to take care of the poor within their land. If you read broader, both fellow Israelites and foreigners in their midst. Because Deuteronomy roots this concern with God's concern for his people. I have another verse on the screen. It's a few verses later. 
Why is Israel to be generous? Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. This is why I give you this command today. Israel's care for the poor is rooted in God's care for Israel. They are just mirroring what they've experienced from God himself. When the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, God rescued them in dramatic fashion. And God says, I rescued you, now you go rescue others. Tell the story forward. And this is part of what it means for Israel to be holy, to be set apart from the other nations. Because this is how God wants to be known, as someone with a deep care and concern for the poor. God cares for the poor, therefore Israel should care for the poor too. Now this would be great if it all worked out, but as you might conclude, there's more to the Bible than Deuteronomy. And so the story does not go as planned. And we get a bunch of prophets, people who remind, people, remind God's people and call them back to their grand vision. And if you read through the prophets like Amos and Micah and Isaiah and Jeremiah, one of the frequent critiques of the prophets is that the people have failed to worship God. They've worshiped idols, statues, bad news, don't do that. But their second critique is that they have failed to care for the poor, the orphan, and the widow. And the prophets cry out on behalf of the mistreatment of the poor, and even more devastating, for Israel's own participation in oppressing them themselves. Not only did they not live out the story, but in the story they become the Egyptians. They become the taskmasters. And this is such an inverse of the story that God is trying to tell in and through them. And so the prophets cry out. This is a hard challenge that Deuteronomy brings us to open our hands because it's easy to become accustomed to being indifferent at the very least. A uh, short story a few years ago, speaking of closed hands and tight fists, um, Lisa and I were in Los Angeles and we were about to head to the airport to go home. Um, and so we had rented a car, we had bought some groceries for the week to kind of save on money. Uh, so we had groceries and drinks and we had to check out of our hotel room. And so we just threw everything in the car and said, you know what, we'll figure out what to do with it when we get to the airport. Obviously it can't go with us. Um, and so I actually thought as I got in the car, I said, I need to get rid of these groceries before we return the car to the, to the rental agency because I just have to. And so we were filling uh, the car with gas, you know, as you have to do right before you get there so you don't get charged $18 to fill up your car. Um, and I'm filling, I'm standing there, and uh, a gentleman walks up to me and asks, he goes, hey, do you have anything to eat or drink? And I immediately shot back, no, sorry, I don't. And the guy left, I finished pumping gas, I got back in the car, I shut the door, and it hit me. I had everything that person needed right in my back seat. And I'm about to throw it away. But here's the thing, I'd become so patterned to rejecting requests that it was second nature to just say no, even when I had things to give away. I just become, this is my pattern. They ask, I say no, they ask, I say no. So that even in this situation where I could, I can't even think the thought because of the way I've been practicing my life. And I think the danger for us is that we can so easily clench our hands that it becomes second nature to keep them closed. 
in Scripture, and particularly almsgiving, is an attempt of God to get us to release God's gifts to one another. Like the people of Israel, I was in need of rescue from my callousness, from my tightened fists. But we see the grace of God in this story. We see the grace of God that even in this devastation of Israel oppressing the poor, God moves again to provide for his people, and this brings us to scene three. This is the story of Jesus. Remember, in the climax of Israel's story, we find the person of Jesus, the Messiah. In the time period of Jesus' day, when there was immense poverty, there were no social safety nets, no services, no aid clinics, nothing. A person's needs were met by their community. Hence the importance of compassionate giving. So I have the gospel reading up on the screen. Notice what Jesus assumes about his hearers. Whenever you give to the poor. So Jesus assumes that his readers, both then and now, are, actually, are actively giving to the poor. The reason we think this is because the next place where Jesus goes, he says, when you pray. And it's the same line. We assume we're always praying, right? Or that Jesus assumes that. He also assumes that with giving to the poor. So when you give, Jesus assumes that his disciples are doing these things. And what Jesus moves to critique in our gospel reading today is not almsgiving. He doesn't critique care for the poor. He critiques the motive for almsgiving. Giving that promotes ourselves as generous is what Jesus attacks. Jesus wants our generosity to be so second nature that our left hand doesn't know what our right hand is doing. He still wants us to give. He's concerned with our motivation. Like Deuteronomy, not only do we open our hands to give generously to the poor, the hands are so freely to give that one hand isn't aware of what the other hand is doing. Jesus expands upon Deuteronomy's vision of care for the poor. And the, mes- and the mission and message of Jesus has a direct impact on those who are poor. Jesus even says earlier in Matthew that the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. It is theirs. And care for the poor finds a central role in Jesus' mission and teaching, just as it did in scenes one, in scene two, now in scene three. And the radical message of Jesus was not only that the poor were included in God's kingdom as like a future hope, as in one day they'll be with us, but that they could now experience the good news, that they could now experience feeding and healing and redemption. And Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospels, if you read through them, reflects this concern and how he provides food and healing to those most in need. These are the people that flock to Jesus because they're hungry. In scenes one, two, and three, we find care for the poor as a central concern. That brings us to scene four. And scene four is the story of you and I. It's the story of you, I, and the early church, the early church and us. As we await a final scene that's coming. So there's one more scene. There's scene five. And that's where we all come to the tree of life in the new Jerusalem and live in the presence of God, in that abundant, now garden city. So like the early church, we wait, but as we wait, we are called to care for the poor. Paul gives us a warning in today's New Testament reading in his pastoral letter to Timothy. Paul says, be content, be be grateful, food and clothing is enough. And then he offers a warning 
about wealth, about extravagant wealth. What I find interesting is that when the Bible discusses riches and wealth, it usually follows that up with a warning to be careful. Be careful. The heart is a funny thing. It loves odd lovers, and it can be turned in various ways. But notice what Paul says to Christians who are wealthy. The passage is on the screen. What's the antidote? Give the money away. Paul says this in verse 17, As for those in the present age that are rich, Christians, command them not to be prideful or haughty, to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, because those things do not last, but rather set our hopes on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Do you hear the echo of scene one of the Garden of Eden, a God who richly provides for his creation? They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The rich are to be rich in generous giving and ready to share their resources with others. Paul draws them back to God as we've seen. God is generous, you be generous. God has been generous to you, so you can be generous to others. And being generous people is at the heart of what it means to be God's people, to bear his image. It's one way that we bear it out. Generosity to the poor runs right through every scene that we've seen so far in Scripture, and there are many, many more stories like this. So, question, why does God invite us into almsgiving? Why extend the invitation? God could do it all himself, right? Correct? Omnipotent, all-powerful. He could meet all the needs if he ever wanted to. But he invites us to be recklessly generous like he is. I think the simple answer, if we could have a simple answer, is that reckless generosity is the story of God and the story of us. When we care for the poor, we model the gospel for the world. Because we give a picture of what it looks like for the God of the universe to reach out in love and mercy and provide for his creation an undeserving gift, something we did not deserve, something that we were not owed, something that we could not work for. But God in his mercy looked down and says, I'm going to give anyway. And there's a Christian word that we throw around all the time. And it's this word called grace. If you've been around the church at all, grace is kind of a big theme. You can't miss it. The interesting thing about this word in Greek is that the word charis, the word that we translate grace, is also, so, also translated gift. So every time you see the word grace, you can also translate it gift. And so when we talk about God's radical grace, what are we talking about? We're talking about God's radical way of giving namely his son, as the supreme act of giving, as the supreme act of grace. And if we look at that act of giving of God, we didn't deserve it, and we were not worthy recipients. And God's gift to us was compassionate to our great need. We were lost. We were in deep need. And the first followers of Jesus were transformed by God's reckless grace towards them. So they became reckless givers to one another too. And here's actually where I'm deeply, deeply hopeful. I think the more we look at God's generosity and grace and gifts towards us, 
the more radically generous we can become, I think we can be transformed too. It was just as radical for those Christians in the first centuries. So you may have a lot of questions. I know I do. What does this look like? What now? What does giving look like? Do I give to everyone I meet? That seems unsustainable. How do I gauge real problems and what's best for like the long term? How do I manage short-term and long-term giving? How do I fix a need in front of me, but also maybe a problem that needs more thought? Maybe you've thought this yourselves. We all face the tension. How do we manage generosity and provision for ourselves and our families? That's the tension of our heart. If I keep giving to everyone I meet, I will not have enough. That's the tension. And certainly there's discernment. We need to be discerning. But can I offer a gentle, gentle pushback? Do we allow our discernment to lead to inaction? Can discernment run a smokescreen for just our lack of wanting to give? Well, I got to be discerning. I don't want to be foolish. We can be both discerning and giving at the same time. They are not mutually exclusive. But my fear is that we often choose discernment over giving on the whole. And if we're worried about foolishness, that, my friends, is the heart of the gospel story. God gave foolishly to us. We rejected the gift. It wasn't placed appropriately. And I think the most important thing we can actually do in the so what now is just actually give. If we do an inventory of our lives and we find that we always say no to people who ask us for money, that may be a bigger problem than sustainability. That may be a bigger problem than discernment. It's hard to be a reckless giver and want a well-thought-out strategy. It's just not the way this type of giving works. This type of giving works, uh, it doesn't really have a model. It's an act of mercy, remember, in the moment where you just give out of radical compassion. Your friend, the person you meet has a need, and I just have to give. And so it's hard to strategize compassion. It's hard to sit back and say, well, I have some time on Tuesday. I'm going to go out on the street on Tuesday from 1 to 3, and that's my compassionate hours, and I'm just going to be compassionate then. Um, yeah, that's, I, I think I got some free time. I can clear some things, right? It's silly because compassion or mercy doesn't work that way. Compassion or mercy is the work of God in us to reach out and help when we find an immediate need without regard for the implications. It's reckless, and that can scare some of us, namely myself, who is a super planner. <laughs> I do not like this. This makes me very unsettled. I really like plans. Um, our giving to the poor is reckless. It, it, at its core, it doesn't make sense but neither does the grace of God and Jesus Christ to us. That doesn't make sense either. And so our reckless generosity mirrors the life of the kingdom of God. And I think our reckless generosity actually has an evangelistic impetus to it. Because here comes the question, how can you be so generous to others? Answer, our God has been so generous to us, would you like to know him? Our generosity raises questions for people who are watching from the outside. Can I offer a caution as we conclude here? 
We need to be careful about the voices we listen to and how they can affect the way we view those in need. The poor may be poor because of bad choices. They may be poor because of a series of unfortunate events. And certainly there are poor people because there are systematic injustices in our country. But the poor, however they arrive there, are still created in God's image, beloved by him, and of immense worth to our Savior. And he calls us to be generous to them. I think there are numerous places for us to show the generosity of God. We live in the richest country the world has ever, ever seen. Our state is the 14th highest ranking state for poverty in our nation. If you, if you dive down into those numbers, sadly in our state, one in four children live in poverty. So when we look at poverty, if you want to put a face to it, it's children. That's who is the biggest percentage of this. And so how is God calling us to be recklessly generous through our, alm, our almsgiving? What if our generosity is meant to be costly? What if our reckless giving causes us to have to cut back on other areas of our life? Saying no to that meal out, I'm preaching to myself here. Saying no to that extra trip so that we can say yes to all the ways that God is inviting us to be generous. Maybe our prayer this week, and this is my prayer, is the prayer from Deuteronomy. God, unclench my hands. Maybe that's the only prayer we can offer at this moment. God, unclench my hands. I want to see what you can do with open hands. The way we live, talk about, and help the poor says so much about the stories that we believe. Our reticence to give or help evokes a far different story of a God of scarcity and lack and not the God we find in Jesus Christ. Abundant and reckless giving evokes the story of our abundant God who has, giving us, who has given us everything we need most clearly in his son. And almsgiving or compassionate giving is perhaps the most God-like giving we can do. Each week, we come to this table, and we actually live out that story. We celebrate this great and reckless gift of God as we come to the table. As poor beggars, we partake of the bread and wine. We ask for something. We put our hands out and ask to be filled. And we're reminded, or at least we should be reminded, that God found us in the poorest of states. And out of his rich love for us, gave us the most costly gift in his son, and as we take of the bread and wine today, may we be reminded of this reckless gift. And may we go from this table empowered to be radically generous, like our generous God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.